Welcome to Traveling Culturati, where we explore cultures and share travel news, travel tips, destinations, and travel chats. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Well, hey there, fellow Culturati. Javon Harley here, your host and travel pro for Traveling Culturati. Today, we're talking about murals and street art. I have two excellent guests joining me today, providing a better understanding of murals and street art in the art world and the impact this contemporary form of art has on society, especially as we deal with social justice, or shall I say injustice. It's really the art imitates life, life imitates art, yin and yang. We also have Javon's Travel Minute and more on murals on the Culture Report. But right now, Let's get into some travel news. It was back to the future for U.S. Airlines in 2020 when passenger numbers fell to levels not seen since 1985. And while traffic will likely rebound sometime this year, the slow rollout of vaccines and new COVID-19 strains have the outlook far from certain. According to the U.S. Bureau of Transportation Statistics, in 2020, airlines carried 368 million flyers. Now, that may seem like a lot. However, in 2019, that number was 923 million. That's a 60% drop. The trade group, Airlines for America, says the industry hasn't seen numbers that low since 1985 more than three decades ago. The decline brings with it a record loss of over $43 billion from the six largest U.S. airlines. Travel is slowly rebounding in 2021 and are yet to be seen as we just are in February. IATA, the International Air Transport Association, predicts that only a 38% increase in 2021 will occur. Now that's hardly a recovery. IATA's chief economist, Brian Pierce, said, we don't have enough information yet about the second half and what it might look like. Of course, this is largely contingent on the virus numbers and vaccine rollout. A new survey from IHG Hotels and Resorts reveals how much people are wanting to be with their loved ones and to make new memories when they're ready to travel again. Close to 60% of those surveyed said they canceled up to four trips, leisure and business last year. More than half the travelers surveyed said they have now rebooked canceled trips or plan to rebook them with family vacations and visiting loved ones topping their travel list. Spending time with family and friends was certainly a primary motivator for this travel year. When the world reopens, one in five said they plan to make up for the lack of travel in 2020 by going on more trips in 2021. One in five people overall said they hope to travel to a place on their bucket list in 2021. With that being true for one in three travelers aged 18 to 24. An interesting point is that young travelers were more likely to say volunteering for a community in need was a primary motivator for their travel. One in three surveyed said going to restaurants and trying new foods has the most positive impact on their vacations. Over a third of those surveyed, including 50% of those 55 and older, said they plan to hold off traveling until COVID-19 vaccines are more widely available. 
As far as business travel, one in three workers globally and 40% in the United States stated the lack of business travel in 2020 demotivated them. 40% of those who travel for business said they missed the face-to-face -face meetings. More than half of the respondents said business travel allows them to create meaningful relationships with their colleagues, customers, and or clients. Nearly 45% shared that business travel improves their working mood and makes them more motivated. And while on vacation, the majority of Americans said traveling with loved ones, creating new memories, and having quality time with others had the most positive impact on their mood, while Australians said it was sightseeing, and for the UK travelers, it was chasing sunshine, getting away from it all. <laughs> now, when it comes to what respondents traveling for work missed the most, one in three said it was sleeping in a comfy bed, and one in four said room service. Cabin fever kills the romance for one in four of respondents aged 45 plus, and said that they're looking forward to intimacy while on vacation. The survey came from OnePoll, a survey-led marketing research company specializing in online and mobile polling. It has offices in London and Bristol, United Kingdom. They surveyed 6,000 people for the survey, 2,000 in the United States, 2,000 in the United Kingdom, and 2,000 in Australia. Now there's another poll that has a very interesting finding. <laughs> that poll says that 38% of Americans would give up sex for one year to be able to travel again immediately. <laughs> the poll was also done in Great Britain and their number was even higher. 40% said they would give up sex for a year to be able to travel again immediately. The travel accommodation platform Trivago surveyed 2,000 Brits and Americans over the course of a week in early January. In their research, Trivago also found that one in five respondents would dump their partner for a chance to hit the road again, and a quarter said they'd trade all their savings for a trip. And nearly half of the Americans polled said they'd give up their jobs to travel. More than half of the respondents said they adopted a new hobby during the pandemic. And once it's all over, about two thirds said they would probably choose a vacation related to that hobby. All told, upwards of four out of five respondents said they view travel as a fundamental part of good life. And about two thirds said that once the pandemic ends, they will travel more than usual to make up for lost time. Yes, I concur with that. <laughs> I don't know about the other stuff. <laughs> More airlines will start requesting passengers' personal information to boost contact tracing during the coronavirus pandemic in a move the aviation industry hopes will encourage lawmakers to lift international travel restrictions. The trade group Airlines for America said, that passenger information like names, email addresses, phone numbers, as well as addresses for their U.S. locations will be passed on to the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Delta Airlines and United Airlines have been collecting that information since the end of last year. Now other airlines will follow suit, including Alaska Airlines, American Airlines, Hawaiian Airlines, JetBlue Airways, and Southwest Airlines. 
stating, we are hopeful that this measure, coupled with existing testing requirements for passengers flying to the United States, will lead policymakers to lift travel restrictions so that international travel can resume and the social economic benefits of that travel can be realized. Airlines have been reluctant to gather such information over concerns that the process would be time-consuming and require expensive computer upgrades. In addition, the data was often not available on passengers who bought tickets from vendors like online outlets. Now, it comes as airlines and unions representing the aviation industry raised concerns that President Joe Biden's administration was looking at putting in place a COVID-19 testing requirement for all domestic air travelers. That has proved not to be true. The CDC requires all travelers to prove that they have a negative COVID-19 test result within three days of their scheduled flight before travel to the United States. Well, if you're looking for a job, just look to the Transportation Security Administration. They're launching recruitment efforts nationwide to fill over 6,000 transportation security officer positions by summer 2021. Each day, officers screen hundreds of thousands of airline travelers, ensuring they arrive at their destinations safely. There's an expectation to screen a higher number of travelers regularly by the summer months, and they'll need additional officers to support that mission. Based on anticipated seasonal travel trends in the months ahead and the progress of COVID-19 vaccinations for the public transportation for the general public, TSA has launched national efforts to recruit new employees in support of screening operations at approximately 430 airports nationwide. Targeted recruitment, virtual job fairs, and opportunities in dozens of cities have already been announced for individuals seeking part-time and full-time opportunities. They have benefits, folks. You can view open positions for TSOs around the country at tsa.gov forward slash TSO. Vietnam is not really being talked about a lot, but they ranked second for successfully handling the coronavirus pandemic and its contact tracing was so good, it barely had to lock down. Vietnam reported 2,362 coronavirus cases and 35 deaths. Their population, 97 million, a third of the US population. So if you look at those numbers, if you were to triple all of their numbers, still they would have less than 7,500 coronavirus cases and only 105 deaths. From previous experience, Vietnam had a long-term plan in place to cope with outbreaks. Contact tracing, strategic testing, clear messaging, and mask wearing prevented mass lockdowns. Now, throughout the pandemic, each country has implemented their own response to the virus, and of course, some better than others. New Zealand, which topped the list, Australia and Taiwan, have been praised for the way their leaders acted quickly. And before recording a single coronavirus case, New Zealand imposed travel restrictions on February 3, 2020, for travelers coming from mainland China. Australia had even stricter rules than most other countries, only allowing residents to travel within three miles of their home. In an op-ed piece for Time magazine, Taiwan's president said the country's success to handling the coronavirus outbreak was no coincidence. 
the painful lessons of the 2003 SARS outbreak, which left Taiwan scarred with the loss of dozens of lives put their government and people on high alert. Now back to Vietnam, which has recorded fewer than 2,500 cases of the novel coronavirus and 35 deaths with a population of 97 million people and shared borders with China, Cambodia, and Laos. But it hasn't been praised the way other countries have for its success in combating COVID-19. Think Tank, the Lowy Institute, published an index on January 28th ranking 98 countries and their success in handling the coronavirus pandemic. Vietnam ranked number two, just behind New Zealand. The U.S. ranked 94. Vietnam's early proactivity and focus on contact tracing helped. As early as January 2020, Vietnam conducted its first risk assessment immediately after a cluster of cases of severe pneumonia were discovered in Wuhan, China. The government responded very quickly and robustly. Schools were shut down and there was a limit on international flights coming in. The government did all the simple things quickly. The country never went into nationwide lockdown while trying to contain the virus. Well, that's all I've got for travel news. And when I come back, we'll have Javon's Travel Minute and murals and street art with Rebecca Zorak, professor of art and art history. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you visit the website, TravelingCulturati.com, and while you're there, connect with me on social media and join that travel club. And now, Javon's Travel Minute. Instead of scheduling an appointment at a global entry enrollment center, you have the unique opportunity to interview for global entry when you return from your next international trip. Global entry applicants who are conditionally approved can complete their interviews, the last step of the global entry process, while they are clearing through U.S. Customs and Border Protection or pre-clearance. Enrollment on arrival is only available at participating international airports in the United States and select pre-clearance locations and is not available on domestic connections. Enrollment on arrival is now available at 62 locations. You can check the website at cbp.gov. Also note that CBP has extended global entry expirations due to the pandemic and their closed and minimally run offices for an additional year. So you want to check your account and see where you stand. You can either book an appointment to go out to the airport on your own, or you can wait for your next international flight and do it upon your return. This is Javon, and that was your Travel Minute. Murals and street art are globally accepted forms of contemporary art. They are expressive, reflective of the society and social events. And as of late, and actually often at various times in history, they find their way front and center to not only the art world, but on the public stage as well. 
In the age of social media, Instagram-worthy shots, and recent social injustices, I thought it prudent to talk about this art form and its impact. And I have the pleasure to chat with Rebecca Zorak. Rebecca teaches in the Art History Department at Northwestern University as the Mary Jane Crow Professor of Art and Art History. She has written in early modern European art, the Black Arts Movement, contemporary activist art, and art and ecology. She co-edited the 2017 book, The Wall of Respect, Public Art and Black Liberation in 1960s Chicago with Abdul Al-Kalamat and Romy Crawford. In 2019, she published Art for People's Sake, Artists and Community in Black Chicago, 1965 through 1975. Well, hello, Rebecca, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Hi, thanks for having me. Well, it's been such an experience going through your body of work and very, very impressive. And it's the reason that I wanted to chat with you about this art form, because I think it's often overlooked and sometimes even frowned upon, or shall I say snubbed, in certain art forms. So how far back can we go with murals and street art? Well, I mean, I think, you know, we can go back very, very long time to, you know, really prehistoric times and ancient times and thinking about people painting on walls. In terms of murals on the street, I think of, you know, graffiti and wall painting that in the Italian Renaissance and other, you know, time periods. I think most recently, if we think about the 20th century, the really sort of important predecessors to the mural movement in the United States were the Mexican muralists which were really, you know, very closely connected to a people's political movement as well. And I think that was something that was really inspiring to artists, you know, th- thinking about in the United States, artists in Chicago, specifically the Wall of Respect, which was 1967. A lot of those artists looked to, you know, predecessors in Mexico, very much so in terms of the relationship of art and politics and what it meant to paint on the street and in community with you know, neighbors and making art that spoke to ordinary people's concerns and really to oppressed people's concerns. Yeah, because people always want to find a way to express what's going on and what they're feeling. So how significant are these forms of art to history and society? Well, I think they're very important. I mean, I think that they're, you know, they've been more prevalent in certain places and times than others, but I think they really are a way of creating imagery that People can walk by on the street. They don't have to go into a museum and kind of have the intention of going to appreciate art in that in that particular way. But they can just kind of see it, you know, see it as it's being created on the street, and also, you know, just happen by in their in their daily life and find something to appreciate in it. In, in it, whether it's just the beauty of the artwork or whether it's a message that it's getting across that might be a political message or a message of community empowerment. And with that being said, the reason I wanted to do this topic, as I said before, was because of the numerous images I've seen on Instagram and, of course, on the news as it relates to recent social injustices. How do you feel about this art form or how do you feel it's being expressed currently? I think there are two sort of main areas that uh, you know, thinking about art that appears in public spaces, I think there are two main areas that political sentiments are being expressed. And one of them, thinking of Chicago specifically, is the, you know, the boarded up storefronts that were kind of very visible as a result of some of the 
kind of events that took place around, not not as part of the protests that occurred in June, but kind of things, that, events that occurred around them with looting and things like that, and and you know breaking of glass windows. And so when those windows were boarded up, there's a, just a really wonderful flowering of artistic activity that kind of took hold and put image imagery out on on the street in that way that, you know, did things like remembering George Floyd and Breonna Taylor and people who had been murdered by police and also just messages, uplifting messages, Black Lives Matter and other messages that kind of reflected the sort of sentiment of community, you know, coming together around particular political issues and a sense of wanting to kind of make something good happen from some of the kind of unfortunate destruction that occurred around the time of the protest. The other thing I think is really important to think about, too, is the ways that artists, and this I haven't seen so much of in Chicago, but I've seen it in imagery, you know, from around other parts of the country, especially in the South, is the ways that artists have kind of appropriated the Confederate monuments or other Mm. problematic monuments and projected images onto them or graffitied their pedestals or, you know, found other ways to kind of comment specifically on the the presence, the continuing presence of those monuments in public space that, uh, you know, cause a lot of hurt to people in, in terms of kind of how, how space is organized around these figures from history who represent, you know, in, in the case of the Confederate monuments, represent a kind of terrible history that we have to remain aware of and conscious of. But I think, you know, African-Americans and other people living in those cities, it shapes public space in a way that continues to reflects an oppressive history. It and certainly so does. Artists, artists kind of coming in and kind of taking hold of them and making, you know, putting other image, imagery onto them, I think was a really wonderful way of kind of shaping the, the conversation. It certainly does. And, and to the point that you were making earlier about the boarded up stores, first of all, that was a little jarring. I lived downtown and it had been a while since I went that way. I would go for a walk, but I would go through the park versus going down Michigan Avenue. Till one day I did decide to go down Michigan Avenue and it had been probably a month or so since those events occurred. And I was really startled at the number of shops that were boarded up. And we do often see that either the city asks that people come by or they take it upon themselves to say, let's paint over this so that we're not just mm-hmm. looking at these boards, but we're looking at a piece of art. So that was yeah, nice I, to see. And I do want to say also, you know, I said I said that they were unfortunate, and I, I I also don't want to imply that I don't perfectly understand why people, you know, take to the streets to to you know to act in ways that might seem destructive, but are really expressions of, of frustration and, and rage that entirely justified. I think the thing that I find unfortunate, especially, is when black-owned businesses are having to clean up and and deal with the effects of looting or you know things that that are putting added pressures on an already difficult time. Absolutely. Absolutely. That is 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 so much understood. Now, when we talk about murals and street art, do they go hand in hand or do they really have different and distinct definitions? I think that there's kind of a continuum or their relationships among them. I definitely think that there are many artists who define themselves as street artists or as graffiti writers who take inspiration from the mural movement and from, you know, the community murals that emerged in the United States in the late 60s and 70s. I think that, on the other hand, sometimes murals are thought of by their 
practitioners as anti-graffiti, as, you know, sort of a way to either clean, you know, cover over, clean up something that had been graffiti, you know, a wall that had been graffitied or, or, or to kind of create a sense of space where if there are murals here, there won't be graffiti. So I think there are some tensions there, but I also think that there's, there's, there's dialogue as well. There, you know, there are artists who consider themselves street artists and graffiti writers who definitely are in kind of, you know, think, who actually think of what they do as, as making murals that, so that there, you know, there can be forms of street art or graffiti that are kind of smaller scale. They're not taking up a complete wall. They're just making a smaller scale intervention. But I definitely think they're also artists in those categories who are doing things that they would consider to be murals. Yeah. And sometimes they're very much rooted in the community and commissioned by. Um, Absolutely. Yeah. Right. So they're like business business owners who, who clearly, you know, who in, in, in last summer who commissioned street artists to come and make even, you know, and some of them are just signs that say we're still open <laughs> or say black owned business or make, you know, kind of a, just like a, put a, put a, kind of quick message out there. Some of them are much more elaborate and beautiful artworks. And so there are you know, definitely things that are commissioned by business owners, sometimes by civic groups or government, and that, you know, kind of might cross the line between street art and murals. I, I do think also there's a sort of this kind of problematic category of murals or street art that's commissioned as a way of kind of creating a certain sort of atmosphere in a neighborhood that actually promotes gentrification and that, you know, kind of can sometimes go hand in hand with pushing people out, you know, longstanding residents out of a neighborhood. I think that's something that you've seen a lot in Tilson, for example. But then there are also, there are lots of different things going on. I mean, Tilson is, you know, has a very vibrant street art and mural art kind of community. So there's some, you know, tensions that can emerge from different kinds of art that's being put up on walls, but it's, it's, it's all, you know, really interesting to watch. It's kind of interesting to see the relationships among different artists as well. It's very interesting that you brought that up because last week's show was on tourism and gentrification, how it impacts a community. So it's very interesting that you, you brought up gentrification and murals and or street art. Historically speaking, what has been the perception of murals and street art in the art world at large? Great question. So I think that murals really, maybe, you know, apart from the Mexican muralists, have not really yet found a very strong toehold in art history as it tends to be taught or written about. I think part of the issue is that murals tend to be ephemeral. They don't last because they're the elements. I think they're also, they're collaborative. They're often, although there may be artists who have a certain kind of level of kind of celebrity associated with them, often they're the product of artists working together in groups and working to, with community members who are not defined as artists. And so it's sometimes a little bit hard to, you know, from really from like a market perspective or from a museum world perspective to kind of understand them because of the, the collaborative nature of the production. And I think that there's been a lot of interest in the art world in recent years in social practice art, which is art that's about kind of working with communities. But in a, in a way, the, the, the history of murals as the products of artists working together with communities hasn't really been recognized as a really important predecessor for social practice art. So I think that's something that's it's maybe starting to happen that, that more people are in in the art world are becoming aware of 
the sort of significance of the mural movement that you know in the U.S. in the 60s and 70s as a kind of predecessor to other kinds of artwork that are that are more prominent today. The other thing is in, in terms of street art. Sometimes I mean I think street art sometimes has gotten kind of assimilated into the art world. There've been sort of moments of trendiness for street art, but I think they're kind of fleeting and they also don't necessarily make the connection to, to murals as part of their history as well. Maybe we'll see them one day in art museums <laughs> or as, as a piece of or representative of those works of art. Well, that, I mean, I think that's the thing too, that they're hard to collect, right? So right. I think that's something that you don't see collectors and dealers and, you know, all these sort of like the, the market side of the art world can't, you know, doesn't know what to make of it. Right. So it's, it's, I mean, I think sometimes with graffiti, it, you know, depending on like the support, like it's not necessarily the graffiti that's out on the street, but graffiti artists and writers, you know, making, making artworks that, that are in the same artistic idiom, but can be, that are smaller scale and can be sold. Like those kinds of things can get assimilated into the market. But I think, with murals that are large-scale murals, I think that's part of why art history hasn't taken as much notice of them, because they don't end up in museums, because they're, they're not marketable. Well, let's talk about some of your work, starting with the Wall of Respect, Public Art and Black Liberation in 1960s Chicago. What was the Wall of Respect? The Wall of Respect was a mural that was painted at the corner of 43rd and Langley in Bronzeville in Chicago in 1967, and it was produced by the Artists' Workshop of the Organization of Black American Culture, which is called Obasi, O-B-A-C. And that was, it was a mural of Black heroes. It was divided into seven different sections of different areas of excellence with heroes and heroines, you know, within those fields represented on the wall. And it was, you know, something that was a a group of artists who came together, painters and photographers working together, and also working with community members and kind of taking feedback from the community and really very much thinking of what they were doing as in a kind of dialogue with community members in that neighborhood. It was a mural that sought to give kind of models of excellence to the community to look at and see at a time when, as one of the creators of the wall put it, like you didn't even see black faces on billboards in black neighborhoods. Hmm. It it was a way of kind of reflecting back to the community something about themselves. It wasn't necessarily informing the community because people knew who these figures were, but it was kind of reminding them, um, reminding them to kind of think about these positive images of African-Americans at a time when negative images were so rife in the broader culture. I see. And you said there were seven themed sections. What were those? Mm -hmm. The seven areas were politics, athletics, jazz, music, R&B, theater, literature, and religion. Oh, okay. Yeah, all pillars of the Black community. It was organized by the Organization of Black American Culture, but were they the ones who commissioned it as well, or were those two separate things? So the Organization of Black American Culture was a broader group that included a lot of writers. It included Abdul Al-Kalamat, who was my co-editor on the book, is a sociologist, and he was very involved in it and wrote a lot of the kind of theoretical statements, or co-wrote them, but he was really the driving force for a lot of the, the sort of theoretical statements that the group put out. So they wanted to do something very visible in the community. 
And one of the things that they came up with was they originally, I think, came up with this idea of a kind of festival of the arts, of all the arts, music, literature, visual arts, etc. And they pretty quickly came upon the idea in, in conversation with William Walker, who was already a mural artist and who went on to have a long career as a muralist. They came up with the idea of doing a mural and doing something that would be very visible, that would be on the street in Bronzeville, that would also be a kind of platform for other kinds of events and activities. So they still had the sort of Festival of the Arts, but they had it out on the street with the mural as a kind of backdrop, but with, you know, all the sort of energy of people being able to kind of just, you know, roll up and start participating so that it really, you know, allowed for just a, a kind of vibrant artistic culture to emerge there on the street. And so it was really the artists who were already involved in Obasi who decided that this was the thing that they wanted to do as their main contribution in that moment. And, you know, with the idea, I think that they would then go on to do other projects beyond that. It didn't actually work out that way. So the visual artist group kind of broke up after the creation of the mural because of various tensions that emerged over the course of the kind of the aftermath of the mural. But the group then continued. It was mostly writers who then kind of took up the the banner and kept the group going. So it was something that really emerged from within the group and then was carried out by the visual artists who were involved in the group. I see. Now, what happened to it? Really what happened was that the city was trying to tear it down. And over time, there were sort of pressures that had to do with urban renewal that led to, there was a fire, it probably was set, we don't know for sure, but that's a long-standing technique in Chicago to get rid of buildings that somebody powerful doesn't want and, you know, in order to redevelop. And so that's, you know, eventually what happened was there was a fire and then it was torn down. Wow, so unfortunate. Was there any part of it that was memorialized? There are some pieces that exist. So one of the really innovative things about the Wall of Respect was the role of photography. The photographers not only documented, really exhaustively and wonderfully documented the mural, but they also placed photographs on the mural itself. And there's one photograph by Daryl Coward that is now at the Art Institute, in the collection of the Art Institute. There's also a study by Jeff Donaldson, an oil sketch for his section, which one of the one of the figures in the jazz section. There's just a few little bits and pieces. And there are all kinds of photographs. I mean, that's the thing. That's the way we really know a lot about the wall, in addition to oral histories of, you know, and, and conversations with people who were there and people who were among the creators. But the photographer just really, they took pictures of the mural itself at various stages of its creation. And then they took wonderful, wonderful photos of the people gathered around it. And uh, so that's really, you know, if you're looking for a, a memorial of the wall of respect, it's really in the the photographs that still exist from it. Oh, fantastic. And then, of course, there is the book, The Wall of Respect. We tried to really allow the creators to speak and, you know, there are interviews and there are writings by people who were involved and there's poetry by the poets like Gwendolyn Brooks and Haki Madibuchi who were there and presented their poems at the wall. So there's a real effort to have, you know, to really represent this kind of multi-vocal community of people who were part of its creation and part of the events that occurred around it. And, you know, it's really kind of a source book of all different kinds of texts and images that can help any reader try to kind of reconstruct what the experience of it was all about. 
The Art Against the Law, another piece that you wrote that was distributed for School of the Art Institute of Chicago. How did art and law collide? Oh, that is a great question. So that is an edited volume. So I edited it and I made a a couple of contributions to it, but it's really many other authors and artists who, you know, wrote about historical subjects, but also their own work. And it's really thinking about art that engages with the law in one way or another. It might be art that tries to change laws. It might be art that engages with the prison industrial complex, with policing, with police torture. There's some really wonderful artist projects that have worked on and drawn attention to the history of police torture in Chicago. There's some pieces that are about art that's illegal, that's like challenging laws by, you know, practice like this. And this is the case for graffiti. So there's a great interview. Well, I think it's a great interview that I did with Levy Raven, who's a really terrific graffiti writer and founder of the University of Hip Hop. And he talks about kind of the question of illegality with respect to graffiti and why it's actually important for graffiti writers that it be illegal. And part of what they're doing is challenging kind of the unjust spatial organization of the city. A lot of different kind of angles on the question of art and law. It's not really a book about art law, like the, you know, kind of copyright laws and intellectual property laws that govern art, but it is about artists who engage with legal questions in one way or another. I see. Very, very intriguing. And I think we don't often think of art in these broader terms, but it is such a broad field and so many different genres that make up the art world, especially for a traveler. You know, one of the things we do is we travel for art sometimes and whether it's in a museum or, you know, whether it's street art that is so widely accessible to the public. And as I mentioned earlier about the Instagram worthy shots, I think a lot of street art and murals have really come to life and to the forefront because of Instagram and those images being publicized so widely on social media. And I think that's, that's absolutely right. Instagram can take a lot of credit for circulating those images really widely. Black Lives Matter. Is that considered the mural or is it graffiti or is it street art that was painted on the streets most famously in Washington, D.C. that's now Black Lives Matter Plaza? That's a really great question. I mean, I think technically it is street art. It's art on the street, right? But I think that there are probably a lot of street artists who have some questions about those kinds of interventions. That was really at the behest of the district. You know, it was Muriel Bowser, I think, the mayor, who, I don't know if she commissioned it, but I know she approved it. And I think that for some street artists, once it goes into the realm of official art, it might be kind of problematic. On the other hand, I mean, D.C. is an overwhelmingly majority Black city, and it makes perfectly good sense for the city to assert that Black Lives Matter, right? Especially when you have a white supremacist in the White House. So I think that it's a multi-layered situation. Certainly. You know, what does it mean for this to become an officially commissioned kind of intervention? Yeah, and it took Um, off because it it is, you know, I mean, I would say it's, it's street art by virtue of being art on the street, but I think there are probably some partisans of street art who would kind of define it in a more sort of technical way and, and not necessarily accept it. Yeah, and it took off. Other cities around the country started painting their own streets or having Black Lives Matter painted on some significant streets in their cities and towns as well. Absolutely. And I do think that from my point of view, I think it's like always good to have that message put out into the world. But I also think that 
you know, there have been some observations of hypocrisy and, you know, when certain kinds of institutions put out messages in support of Black Lives Matter, but they're not necessarily actually enacting the ideas that go along with it in their institutional framework. Absolutely. Well, Rebecca, this conversation could go on forever, but unfortunately, we are (laughs) out of time. (laughs) And I want to thank you so much for this chat on a very, very interesting topic and art form. You have another piece that you published, Art for People's Sake, and that can be found at dukeupress.edu slash art for people's sake. So check it out. Actually, all of your pieces are really phenomenal. And if you can, take a course <laughs> from you. <laughs> so thank you again for joining me today. Such, such uh, a wonderful so much, chat. Thank you so much, This has been really a lot of fun. When I come back, I'll be chatting with mural artist Dorian Sylvain on The Culture Report. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Welcome back to the Traveling Culturati. I'm your host and travel pro, Javon Harley. Make sure you visit the website, TravelingCulturati.com, and while you're there, follow us on social media and join that travel club. Culture is forever changing and reflecting what's happening in the society and with its people. It can be born from the arts, music, food, and sometimes politics and strife. This is the Culture Report on murals, artwork painted or applied directly to a wall, ceiling, or other permanent surface. Joining me today is Dorian Sylvain. Dorian is a painter whose color and texture explore ornamentation, pattern, and design as identifiers of cultural and historical foundations. Her art reflects, connects, and strengthens Black Chicago, and for the past four decades, she has been committed to educating youth and creating public art that elevates neighborhoods and environmental aesthetics through collective art making. Well, hello, Miss Sylvain, and welcome to Traveling Culturati. Well, hello, and thank you so much. It's a real pleasure to be able to speak to your audience and to get to know you also. Absolutely. I so enjoyed perusing your site and knowing and learning so much more about you. So what are your roots in Chicago? Born and raised in Chicago, born on the South Side and the, the South Shore neighborhood. And my family, we moved into the neighborhood actually just as redlining was sort of breaking down in the mid-60s and just prior to the white flight that occurred in the city. So my roots are really in that period of transition as the city was kind of re-segregating themselves or, or trying to integrate themselves to some degree. Well, I think we're all at this stage, those of us born at a certain time are really rethinking this segregation thing. I think that it's not what we thought it was or would be. And I think that has really changed the landscape of our culture and our communities and our economics as well. Yes, I agree completely. Another whole story, another whole topic. Yes, a whole huh? conversation, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm going down that slippery slope. 
Exactly. Now you, and, and a lot due to your roots, you've really worked with black and brown communities in Chicago. So what are your concerns as it relates to art? Well, you know, as I mentioned, I was around the South Shore neighborhood really during its height. You know, I remember when I grew up, we had two movie theaters, the Jeffrey Theater, the Hamilton. 71st Street was a very busy business district. And South Shore was a solidly middle class, upper middle class black neighborhood. And so it was a wonderful, wonderful place to grow up in. My mother, being an educator herself, she uh, was a, used to teach autistic and deaf children. I grew up really understanding the value of teaching and the value of sharing your expertise. And so as a young girl, when I originally went to college downtown at American Academy of Arts, I guess I started to become much more aware of the fact that a lot of kids didn't have access to art education. And a lot of things that I just took for granted because my mother, whatever they were teaching at the YMCA, we were taking it. Baton twirling, cooking, sewing, whatever. She was a very strong about myself and my siblings, you know, taking classes and learning things. But I realized looking out at the broader neighborhood that a lot of, you know, children didn't have the type of parents that would advocate for them. And now, many, many years later, decades later, because I've been practicing as an artist for four decades, I look around the landscape and I see the same thing. Mm. And I've been kind of labeling them as art education deserts, you know, where there just does not seem to be much access for young people to engage in art or learn art. So at a very early age, I was actually able to secure a grant and was giving free art classes at the South Shore Library. And I think that really marked the beginning of my commitment to trying to bring free arts education programs to neighborhood children. And I understand that you really think that COVID has exacerbated that as well. Yes, yes, yes. Much of my practice, as I've mentioned, has been not only producing, designing public art, but I have been equally as active as an arts educator. And so pre-COVID, I was teaching in several places, the Hyde Park Arts Center, Marwin. I was teaching set design with the Court Theater. Jess was very, very active. And since COVID, I think that it has really created even a stronger divide. I mean, not only do we have to recognize that CPS has a large homeless population when it comes to children, but they also don't have equal access to things like just basic things like, you know, art materials, be it crayons and scissors and markers. And so children that I would often see in the context of programs such as at the Hyde Park Arts Center where they were able to access free programming, they're no longer able to access it. So many of the online programs that I have hosted since COVID, I really noticed that the whole demographic has shifted completely where, you know, I have children participating that already have a lot of stuff, that already have a lot of art experience or, or go to schools that have, you know, a full-time art teacher. And so I'm feeling as though there are many kids who are really being lost in the cracks right now. And that just really concerns me. I want to talk about some of your installations. And as I said, I had 
so much fun. I was getting lost in your website and your studio website, <laughs> looking at all of the different projects that you've worked on and installations that you've been commissioned for. Let's talk first about the Mural Moves Chicago. Right. Well, Mural Moves Chicago is what I like to refer to as a campaign. And meaning that, you know, my commitment to public art is so strong that I felt that I needed to sort of create a campaign around that idea of having more public art available to community. And on probably on its most fundamental level, it can be about beautification. You know, one of the issues we've been particularly dealing with in South Shore as there has been years worth of disinvestment is just the blight in the neighborhood. You know, the businesses that are closed and the boarded up properties or the security gates that are across windows. And there's really a psychological cost to living in those type of environments. And so the mural moves has been about trying to tackle that community blight on some level. As I mentioned, beautification, I think, is one of the probably more base benefits of the public art. But it's also about creating some dialogue. It's also about celebrating our history. You know, it's also about being a sounding board or a voice in terms of public concern. And, you know, for example, we all saw the great rise in public murals when a lot of, you know, businesses were being attacked and windows were being broken. And so all across the city, you just had this landscape of, you know, raw wood on top of everything. And it was beautiful to see all the painters, because not everybody was a muralist, but, you know, painters and artists that kind of came to the aid of that and said, we don't want our landscape in the city of Chicago to look like this. So not only are we going to try to tackle these boards from the standpoint of being a painter, but that we all have so much to say, you know, behind George Floyd's murder. There was just so much that needed to be said. There was so much energy and so much disgust that not only, of course, were people compelled just to hit the streets in huge numbers, but artists also kind of felt like, I've got to add to this conversation. And so many, many, many of the boards were really dedicated to the Black Lives Matters and to George Floyd in particular. And it was just a wonderful moment, you know, and I think that really highlighted the value of public art. And I loved looking at what you did with Our City is a Garden. Basically, myself and a photographer, Jeff Phillips, collaborated in designing this. We were contacted through the Chicago Public Library, and they have a group of young folks, I think mostly high schoolers, that participate in a program they call U Media. BMO Harris, their building had a ton of smashed windows after various incidents, and so they had just dozens of boards up, you know, to cover their windows. And they decided that they wanted to take these actual boards off their window and then give them to some art organizations to create some murals. And so we were given two, four, six, eight, eight boards. And again, we're able to use the roundhouse at DuSable because it's completely empty. Then we had one day where all the students came down to DuSable and we had printed all of their collages. 
but also made available to them even more imagery and more language if they wanted to build upon their collage. The students were able to, number one, get together for the first time in months, but then to work on this very large piece and create an individual statement. The Chicago Public Library has a wonderful collection of artists within their building, and it just brought me a lot of pride to be able to say that, you know, we've got a piece in there now, too. I love that you said early on that your mother exposed you to art at a young age, and you're keeping that going, and you've involved your sons, making it a true family affair. It's really been just a joy, you know. I, I know a lot of parents that talk about being empty nesters, and it's almost as though they look forward to their kids going off and having their own life, and Maybe I just haven't cut the cord yet. <laughs> I really enjoy working with my kids. I mean, they grew up around this art thing, and they absolutely grew up with a paintbrush in their hands. So now that they're all in their 20s, one of the real benefits of having them, like I said, not only because I enjoy their company, but they're also, their working with me has allowed my capacity to grow. So now I can take on bigger projects. I could take on more projects. So it just is really working beautifully. I just see so much growth in them. And I see that these opportunities have really allowed them to stretch their vision of how they define themselves as artists. What's your website? My website is uh, my name, DorianSylvain.com. That's D-O-R-I-A-N-S-Y-L-V-A-I-N.com. Thank you so much for joining me. It's been a pleasure. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, that's it for the show today. Wherever you go, go with all your heart. Confucius. Ladies and gentlemen. This is Traveling Culturati. We explore cultures and destinations. We share travel news and travel tips to keep you well-informed and prepared for your next travel adventure. So go ahead and up your travel game with Traveling Culturati. Visit TravelingCulturati.com for more information. Ladies and gentlemen.